If you want to open up with me in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 12, we'll be looking there this morning to God's Word. And if you've been with us, we've been going through the John's Gospel for some years now, and it'll probably be a couple more years before we finish. We've taken a couple breaks, but um, we've gone through and we've seen all that Christ has done revealed through the eyes of the Apostle John. And we've seen the seven signs that, um, that Jesus has wrought, declaring who he is as the Son of God, the one that has come in power to save God's people, the one promised the word of flesh, the word made flesh, rather. And we saw in John chapter 10 that he has come as the good shepherd, right? He's not like the shepherds of the people, the false shepherds that come to devour the sheep and and take them, but he's come as the good shepherd who will love his sheep and actually lay down his life for his sheep, not devouring the sheep for his own gain, but laying down his life for his own sheep. And we saw in John 10, it's not just the sheep of the people of Israel, but the people from other folds, as Jesus will say, so that there may be one shepherd, one flock, one people of God. But as we saw last week, before this great harvest must take place, this harvest of the nations, all those from every tribe, tongue, and nation being welcomed in, something must happen first, and that is death. We saw this last week in John chapter 12, that this is not just any death that our Lord is approaching in the last week of his life, but it's the wrath-atoning sacrifice of himself for sinners, bearing the weight of divine punishment. But it is actually this means that God is going to use to accomplish his purposes, right? That just as a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, and so bearing much fruit, this is what will be happening in the death of Christ. And my hope is that we'll see today as we continue through this dialogue, this final public dialogue of our Lord in the last week of his life, we'll see first the great anguish that our Lord is under, that as his death approaches, he begins to feel the weight and anguish of his coming death. But we'll also see that this death will result in the judgment, not only of the world, but the judgment of the ruler of this world, Satan himself, bringing an end to all evil. And ultimately, what we'll see as we see the passage close is that we'll see the absolute necessity for the Son of Man to be lifted up. That in his sacrificial death, he will draw all people to himself so that God's ultimate and eternal plan and purpose might be accomplished in the work of the incarnate Son. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's word. We'll pick up at verse 27. Jesus says this. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. 
Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy that you've poured out on us in Christ. We thank you for your infallible, sufficient word that you've given us this morning, that as we look to it with the eyes of faith, empowered by your spirit, we pray this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the truth of your word and the glory of Christ, and and that we would accept these words, not as the words of men, but as what they truly are, the very word of God. We pray this morning that you would strengthen us, that you would equip us to hear these things, and that ultimately our faith would come to rest on Christ alone this morning. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at four things this morning, four things that we're going to look at. First, in verse 27, we're going to look at the sorrow of the son, the sorrow of the son. Then next, in verses 28 through 30, we'll look at the glory of the triune God, the glory of the triune God. Thirdly, we'll look at, in verse 31, the judgment of the world. And then finally, in the remaining verses, we'll look at the lifting up of the son of man, the lifting up of the son of man. So we see in verse 27, after what had just come before this, our Lord's his dialogue about his need to die like a grain, like a seed, like a grain of wheat falling into the heart of the earth and dying and therefore bearing much fruit. In the same way, our Lord must also die, and in his death will reap a great harvest of the nations. Just as the Greeks were seeking him, we'll see in the book of Acts, this will ultimately come to fruition, people of every tribe, tongue, and nation following our Lord. But before that happens, we see that our Lord is under much much anguish. He says in verse 27, my soul is now troubled. (laughs) My soul is is now troubled, right? We see here the great toil and anguish that comes upon our Lord as he contemplates his hour of coming death. That after proclaiming the glory and the great fruit of his death, he now perceives the great sorrow and suffering of the hour that is now here, right? We see here a sort of window into the inner state of our Lord's human soul, a window into his human soul. What one commentator called this, a prelude to the Garden of Gethsemane, right? A prelude to the Garden of Gethsemane. That what we have here in verse 27 is the perfect, sinless, incarnate Son of God contemplating his wrath-atoning sacrifice, right? He's contemplating his wrath-atoning sacrifice that is about to take place, that he will become the bearer of divine justice and wrath on the cross for sinners. As the Old Testament would say, drinking the cup of God's wrath. Now, these are amazing words that our Lord here says for several reasons. We see here first the necessity of our Lord's incarnation. 
the necessity of our Lord's incarnation, that Jesus was not just a man, sorry, he was not just God pretending to be man. He wasn't like a hologram, right? Have you ever seen, they had a hologram of Tupac or at some festival or whatever, okay? It's not a hologram that's walking around of God pretending to be man, okay? This is truly the Son of God taking to himself our very nature, Not only do we see in this passage confirmation that our Lord assumed to himself a human nature, both body and soul, because what's he say? My soul is now troubled. So we have confirmation of that. But we see in this passage that this was a real human soul, a real, reasonable, natural human soul. What do I mean? We're going to get a little technical here for a second. That in the incarnation... The Son of God, the second person of the triune God, assumes or takes to himself our very nature, both body and soul. With all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. That's what our confession says in chapter 8, paragraph 2. Without conversion, without composition, without confusion. He's not some sort of Frankenstein God-man, right? He is God incarnate, assuming to himself our nature, both body, which I think we're very familiar with, but also soul, right? Body and soul. And we see this confirmed in verse 27 because he says, my soul is now troubled. His human soul was truly troubled as he contemplated his coming death. It was really truly in anguish according to his human nature, right? Have any of you ever felt anguish? Have you, any of you ever felt trouble as you contemplate and think about maybe something that you have to do that's kind of scary or difficult or hard? Right? We've all had conversations that we have not exactly looked forward to having, right? And maybe you're sitting there contemplating the future and your soul becomes troubled or in anguish. But we know that this is not just a mere man incarnate. This is the son of God. <laughs> and so he's troubled perfectly. He's doing this without sin. As the Athanasian Creed says, he is perfect God and perfect man. Okay. So he does this perfectly without sinning. And we see this reality come to life as we continue in verse 27. He sort of asks himself this question, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He's sort of asking this. He's wrestling with this reality. He knows his death is coming and his soul is troubled. And so he sort of asks himself this question, Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? It's almost as if he's saying this. Should I have the Father take this cup of wrath from me? Should I forego this painful death that lays ahead of me? Should I spare myself from this terrible hour? Right? He's wrestling with this reality. Our Lord knows the sorrow and anguish that he will experience on the cross. He's contemplating this. And he is wrestling with this reality. And in one sense, we can say that this is the natural response and natural reaction to humans when they're confronted with death. It is natural. It is right. It is proper for humans to feel this way as they approach death. 
This is a natural human response. But what makes this so amazing is our Lord is troubled without sinning. His soul is troubled and yet without sin. He's tempted here to forego the shame of the cross, to doubt God, to doubt his promises, to even be caused to despair. But yet he remembers and recalls why he is here. And that's why he says at the end of verse 27, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. He remembers, <laughs> that's kind of an anthropomorphic way of saying, right? He remembers the purpose for why he's come. He remembers why this hour is taking place. He's basically saying, this is why I'm here. This is why I've come to this hour is namely to accomplish redemption for God's people, right? This is why I've come. I've come as the suffering servant to suffer and die. This is why the word became flesh and dwelt among us, to live, to die, and to rise in the room instead of sinners. The eternal purpose of the triune God to send his only begotten son according to the covenant of redemption to be the one mediator between God and man the Savior and head of his people, the church. This is the purpose, this is the reason why Christ has come. This is the eternal plan and purpose of God. This hour, we could say, was ordained before the foundation of the world, and our Lord cries out, this is the purpose for which I have come. But we could ask the next question, what are the effects of this? What are the results of this hour. We'll have to wait until we get to verses 31 and 32 before we see that. But first we'll look at the motivation, the chief end of this great work that our Lord set out to accomplish. And that brings us to our second point, the glory of the triune God. The glory of the triune God. We see in verse 28, our Lord's petition, his prayer. He cries out these four simple words, Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. Four simple words. His prayer that the Father would receive glory in his sacrificial death. That God the Father would be glorified in this hour. We see here, this is the incarnate Son of God praying to the Father that his name would be glorified. His desire for the will and the glory of God in this purpose. And so we see here, it's amazing, we see this contrast in the parallel in verses 27 through 28. We see in verse 27, he is tempted to say, Father, save me. Father, spare me. Remove this cup from me. He's tempted to have the Father save him. But we see in verse 28, he instead says, Father, glorify your name. He remembers the purpose for which he was sent. Or we could kind of make a parallel statement to what he says in the Garden of Gethsemane. What's he say? Not my will but yours be done. Sadly, that verse has been twisted and used to kind of say there's multiple wills in God and the Son has eternally subordinated his will to the Father. Okay, we don't want to say any of that. What's being said there then? 
What Jesus is saying is not my human will be done that naturally wants to preserve its life, that naturally doesn't want to die, but your divine will be done. The will of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so the same thing is applying here, that the glory of the Father is not different than the glory of the Son. I liked what John Gill said. He said, what glorifies the one glorifies the other. What glorifies the one glorifies the other. We're not distinguishing the glory of the Son from the glory of the Father. In um, the Trinity, there is one glory, one God, and one Almighty. And so we see the point, the goal, the end, the chief end of all things, Jesus proclaims here, the glory of God. What's the Westminster Confession or the Catechism say? The first question, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We see that stated by our Lord, Father, glorify your name. But we see an amazing thing in verse 29. We see that a voice comes from heaven. A voice comes from heaven. The voice of the Father, the same voice that spoke at Christ's baptism and at his transfiguration, proclaims from the heavens, it says this, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The Father proclaiming his glory. I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. Or we could say it like this. God has received glory in the incarnation, life, ministry, and obedience of our Lord, and he will receive glory in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection and ascension, both his sufferings and his glory. God will be glorified, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is amazing. This supernatural voice from the heavens speaks and declares these words, And yet, what do we see in verse 29? We see the blindness of the people and their response. It says this, The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him, right? There's all this confusion about what's going on. Some people say, Oh, it was the thunder. Some people say, Oh, it was an angel, right? There's confusion. There's blindness about what's going on. God the Father has just spoken from heaven, and they think there's a weather storm going on, okay? It kind of reminds me. um, (laughs) uh, This is a silly story, so I apologize. But in second grade, you know, when, um, like, guys would try to talk to girls, you know, they would, they would try to, like, say something to them, and the girls would ignore them, and they would say, what was that, the wind? (laughs) as this kind of thing to ignore ignore the guys or whatever. And it feels like that's what's going on here a little bit. Like this voice from heaven speaks, the Father speaking, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. And someone says, oh, that must have been the wind. It must have thundered, right? It kind of reminds me of, you think about atheists and their view of the world. They see creation. They see the glory of God in all things. They see the intricacy of nature, how it's woven together. And they say, oh, it was a big bang. You know, it thundered. They, there's this idea that it was all chance. It was all just sort of happenstance. And we see that that's folly. That's blindness. That's ignoring the glory of God. And I think a similar thing is happening in verse 29. The people are mistaken. They think it's just thundered. They think there's a storm going on. 
But we see confirmed in verse 30 that this voice came not to try to reassure Jesus of something that he didn't know, but for the sake of a blind and deaf people. That brings us to our third point, the judgment of the world. The judgment of the world. Jesus says in verse 30, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. It didn't come to reassure me of something that I didn't already know. It came for your sake. And then he says these amazing words in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. We see here this is the effect, the purpose of the coming of the Son of Man. It was for this purpose that his hour has come, the judgment of this world and its ruler. And it's at this point that we have a lot of questions, right? Maybe some of those are popping into your head right now. Maybe some of them are something like this. What is this judgment that Jesus is referring to, right? What is this judgment he is talking about? Who is the ruler of this world? I thought the ruler of this world was God. How can God be cast out? There's a lot of questions about that. What does it mean that he is casting this ruler of the world out even now? And why And what does this all have to do with the Son of Man being lifted up, crucified, and ultimately raised and glorified? How do we make sense of all these things? I think the answer to a lot of these questions actually lies at the beginning and the end of Scripture. At the very beginning and the very end of Scripture. That what I think Jesus is saying here is something like this. My sacrificial and substitutionary death, the one that is now troubling my very soul, even though it will seem like my utter defeat, is actually my great victory over all things. And the effects it will accomplish will be decisive. Okay? What do I mean? That It's almost as if he's saying this, that in my incarnation, I have come as the true son of man that was promised in Daniel chapter seven, the last and better Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do. If you go back to the beginning of your Bible, you look at Genesis chapters one through three, we see that Adam is set up as this sort of vassal priest king over God's creation. He's called to rule a creation. He's called to rule over it, right, in this garden temple under God, the great king, and he's commissioned to guard and keep this garden temple. That's the same language that's used in the Old Testament, temple priesthood, right? Guard and keep. And what he's supposed to do is that if any intruder comes in, any evil thing enters this garden sanctuary, he is to kick it out. (laughs) He is to crush the head of whatever would come in. He is to um, cast out all evil from it, crushing any enemy intruders. This was what he was to do. He was to guard and he was to keep. But we all know this is what Adam failed to do, right? The serpent comes in, deceives Adam and Eve, Satan himself. And in doing this, in the breaking of the covenant of works, They are kicked out of the garden, right? And sin and death 
comes upon all humanity because of this one act of unrighteousness. And in effect, we can say this, that Adam gave over his rulership of this current world to Satan, the devil, right? We can say that. And all it takes really is five minutes of looking at the news to confirm this. (laughs) All you have to do is turn on the TV for a couple minutes and you're instantly reminded of the fallenness of this world, that this world is broken, that there's sin and destruction everywhere. And I sometimes, I don't know about you guys, it just feels like I have to look away sometimes because there's just so much evil in this world, so much wrong, so much that's even in our own hearts. And so Adam was called to guard and keep. He did not do that. He allowed evil into this um, temple garden and therefore thrust all of humanity, all of the world into sin and unrighteousness and gave over his rulership of this world. But we see in Genesis 3.15, shortly after these events, that the good news that God would promise is that he would send another Adam. He would send another Adam that would actually do what Adam failed to do, what we like to call the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, the one that would come and crush the serpent's head, defeating the devil and defeating the works of the devil, the Lord Jesus Christ. That he has come as the better and last Adam, saving his people from this fallen world, pronouncing judgment on sin fully and finally, and overthrowing and casting out the ruler of this world, as it says in Ephesians, right? The prince of the power of the air. Paul calls Satan the god of this world. Satan himself, Christ came to overthrow and cast out. First receiving his sentence and ultimately awaiting his final execution. Or as Jesus will say in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, you first have to bind the strong man before you can plunder his house. Christ has come to bind the strong man so that the nations might be brought in. That's what we're seeing in our passage this morning. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. But the question remains in our head, how is this going to happen? How is Satan going to be overthrown? How is God going to judge all evil in the world and yet save his people who are sinful? How is God going to do this? And the answer brings us to our fourth point and final point this morning, the lifting up of the Son of Man. The lifting up of the Son of Man, that we find our answer in verse 32 when Jesus proclaims this, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is the lifting up of the Son of Man, the lifting up of the Son of Man that we see in verse 32 It is not by conquest, it's not by military triumph or sword that our Lord will achieve this great victory over the world and the ruler of this world, but it's actually by his sacrificial death. By his sacrificial death on the wooden cross. By becoming a curse for us. 
as Colossians will say, disarming the rulers and the authorities and putting them to open shame. It is by the lifting up of the Son of Man from the earth in brutal, agonizing death that a way of salvation is made for God's people. That's the only way. It is through the lifting up in death of the Son of Man. And so we see here the absolute necessity of Christ to be lifted up from the earth. That it is in this act and the effects of this act that would cause all people from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, Jew and Gentile, the, the world to be drawn to him effectually, irresistibly as the one whom the world had rejected. It is in him that his people will find life and salvation. Or we could use a parallel that Jesus uses from John chapter 3. Just as the son of, just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent on the pole, an emblem of judgment and a picture of the people's sin, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What's he say after that? That whoever believes in him would have eternal life. This is the lifting up of the Son of Man. That we can say with confidence that on the cross, the perfect Son of Man was lifted up. Just like the bronze serpent was lifted up on a pole, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on a wooden pole. Becoming sin for us, taking the judgment that our sin deserved so that we might be reconciled to God. And we see that he came not only to judge the world, not only to bind Satan from deceiving the nations, but so that he might draw all people to himself, both Jew and Gentile. And we see the amazing connection here. This is why the Greeks are seeking him. We see that he would draw all people, Jew and Gentile, to himself in his sacrificial death, plundering the house of the strong man. That those who were enslaved in their sin, under the dominion and power of the evil one, Satan himself, might be drawn effectually to Christ in the light of the gospel. And that just as the people in the Old Testament were saved from their poisonous venom by looking to the bronze serpent, so the people of God are saved by looking in faith to Christ, lifted up in his crucifixion. Satan's power over God's people destroyed, his hold on the nations broken, and sin's condemnation removed and nailed to the cross. All that that the Son of God might be glorified, right? This is John chapter 12. And so as we walk away from this passage, as we begin to contemplate and seek to apply this to our lives, there's three things that we need to note this morning. The first one is this. The necessity of our Lord's human nature, both body and soul. The necessity of our Lord's human nature, both body and soul. That if the Son of God did not come as man, you and I would be lost. We would be lost in our sins and trespasses. That he came as man in order to save us. One of the early church fathers says, that which he does not assume, he cannot save. That which he does not assume, he cannot save. That he had to come in our very nature, both body and soul. He assumed our nature. Why? Why did Christ come in the flesh? So that he might redeem it. <laughs> so that he might redeem us 
both body and soul. Not just coming in a body that he might suffer in our place, but taking to himself a human soul with all its faculties and infirmities, yet without sin. (laughs) Yet without sin. And that's what we see in our passage. Our Lord, for any of you Trekkies out there, he's not like Spock, okay? He's not this half man, half Vulcan, okay, creature that is just emotionless, logical, stoic, right? If you've ever seen Star Trek, that's what Spock's like. This emotionless, logical, stoic person. And I think that we can think like this sometimes, right? That Jesus, because he's God, he just kind of does the logical math of the cross and he says, well, it's all for the glory of God, so it's no big deal, right? But we see here that's not the case. We see our Lord is greatly troubled in his very soul, even in the garden, coming to the point of bleeding over the agony of his impending death. So no, this is not what Christ is like. He's not um, this half man, half Vulcan creature. He is the son of God incarnate, very man of very man. He truly felt anguish. He truly felt trouble in his soul. He had real emotions, not according to his divine nature, which is without passions, but according to his human nature, the only nature that is proper for him to have these emotions, yet without sin. And I, I think that in reform circles even, we can, we can often be guilty of thinking like this a little bit, right? That we see the pain in the world, we see the atrocities that plague our land, and we can be tempted to say very kind of heartlessly, well, it's all for the glory of God, right? We can kind of speak like that sometimes when we see the atrocities and the things of this world. And while that may be true, it can be a heartless and loveless answer to people's genuine questions about why there is evil. And it's really kind of, at best, it's uncaring and cold. And so even though the glory of God in all things is our only comfort, um, we need to remember the importance of these things. That emotions are good. (laughs) That's part of being human. (laughs) You're created that way. You're created to have emotions. You are human, if you didn't know that. But because of sin, right, because sin has affected every area of our life, every faculty, our emotions are fallen. (laughs) They're, They're fallen in their very nature. And so at the same time, we are often tempted to be overcome by our emotions, right? Overwhelmed, overtaken, controlled by our emotions, sometimes led astray, sometimes led to sin, sometimes led to not trust the Lord. Maybe it's anger and frustration that you have towards your kids or your coworkers. Maybe it's anxiety and depression that you're struggling with, that you're not giving to the Lord or taking to the Lord. You're allowing it to consume you. Maybe it's excessive sorrow over a difficult situation. These are all ways that our emotions can overtake us and overwhelm us in a way that, <coughs> excuse me, that could be sinful, right? So we see our emotions are indeed fallen, but the good news that we see in this passage is that Christ came to redeem us, both body and soul, and even our emotions. He came to redeem our sinful nature, sanctifying our fallen souls, and that even though his soul was troubled by something much greater than you and I's daily struggle, namely 
the wrath of God that was about to be poured out on him. He did not sin. He trusted in the promises of God and his will, will and his glory. And so this is recorded for us this morning, not so that we might despair, but actually so that we might have hope because Christ did all this for us and for our salvation. He endured this trouble for us. What does the book of Hebrews say? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. This is what our Lord has done, and this is good news. The second thing we need to see here is the final judgment of Satan and this world. The final judgment of Satan and this world. I think it was R.C. Sproul that said, ultimately, the devil is God's devil. (laughs) The devil is God's devil, right? He's on a leash. It might look like he has control. It might look like that he has power and influence in this world, but he is ultimately God's devil, meaning he's on a leash. He cannot do anything not ordained by God. That this is what we mean, that Satan could come and he could tempt Adam and Eve, right? He could seduce Judas to betray our Lord. He could deceive the Pharisees. He could blind the crowds. He could even use Pontius Pilate as a puppet, but he could not thwart the eternal plan and purpose of God. (laughs) He could do all those things thinking he was going to gain a victory over Christ, but it was actually his ultimate downfall. That in the death of Christ itself, the ruler of this world is cast out and will ultimately be thrown into the eternal lake of fire at the end of all things. And we see John later in his first epistle confirms this for us. He says in 1 John chapter 3, this is the reason the Son of God appeared. Why did the Son of God appear? To destroy the works of the devil. (laughs) To destroy the works of the devil. As I've said before, and as others have said, it's kind of an interpretation of Genesis 3.15, the serpent crushing seed of the woman. Christ came to put an end to Satan's temporary rule and reign to bring about his ultimate kingly reign, bringing in, beginning in the hearts of his people. This is why Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And he begins that work by saving and changing his people. And that brings us to our third and final observation this morning. The light of the glory of the gospel. The light of the glory of the gospel. That the way God's people will ultimately be drawn to him from every tribe, tongue, and nation, as we see recorded there in verse 32, that the way God's people will be drawn to him is not by ecstatic experiences. It's not by motivational speeches, self-help strategies, or novel worldly practices. But it is by the supernatural work of the Spirit of God in the public preaching of Christ and Him crucified. The ordinary means of grace, the proclamation of the gospel, God drawing His people to Himself. Opening the eyes of their hearts to see the glory of Christ in the gospel. And we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says these words. He's contrasting the ministry of those that would seek to undermine God's word with the ministry that he, he has been given. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. 
But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And then listen to these words. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is how God is going to draw people to himself, by the glory of the gospel of Christ, lifting up Christ publicly for all to see, the public lifting up of the Son of Man in the preaching of the good news. This is how God is going to draw all people to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation not looking with physical eyes upon the crucified Savior, but looking upon him with the eyes of faith. And we see at the end of all things, we have great confidence in the book of Revelation that Christ has come, Satan will be thrown down and conquered, not by the works of men, but by the blood of the Lamb. I'll close with these words. Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. John says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. May this give us great hope and confidence this morning that even though we face even death itself, we can know that Christ has defeated Satan. He's defeated our spiritual enemies. He's crushed the head of the serpent. And at the end of all things, we will be with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. That's our hope this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the lifting up of the Son of Man. That what is foolish to this world is the wisdom of God. That Christ and him crucified is the power of God. That what is weak and lowly in this world will thwart the wisdom of this world. And we see that in the Gospel of John and in the Gospel itself, that Christ in his sacrificial death has saved his people from their sins, drawing them to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation that in the public preaching of your word, you've ordained the means by which your people would be drawn to you. And so we pray this morning that through this means of grace, through the preaching of your word, your people would be drawn to you, maybe for the first time, But for those of us who are in Christ, may we be strengthened this morning. May we be encouraged in our faith that Christ has done it all. And even though we will face trouble and trial and tribulation in this life, we can look forward to the life to come. 
that we will conquer, not by our works, but by the blood of the Lamb. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.